Amen. Well, today is our final week in our vision series. We've gone through four weeks in a row now looking at a vision for our church, looking at who has God called us to be, what has God called us to do as God's people at Riverview Baptist Church, what should we be giving our time and energy and attention to. And so this week we come to the end of this series. We come to the end of our vision series together. You can go ahead and turn in Colossians chapter 3 in your Bibles. And as you're turning there, I'll just review just a little bit. So we started four weeks ago with this idea of worship. We started with an idea of worship saying, if we're going to be the people God's calling us to be, we must love God with our hearts, with our souls, with our minds, with our strength, with all that we are. And so it begins with clearly seeing and beholding God's glory and then reflecting that out into the world around us. And then we looked at this need that we have for fellowship, that we need other believers in our lives to encourage us, to come alongside us, to build us up. And we saw that in when we looked at Live, when we looked at our life group ministry, that that's the place where we're hoping that you're able to find authentic Christian community in one of our life groups. And then after that, we got into this idea of grow, that every believer is called to grow and that we need to be disciples who make disciples. And so we looked in the book of John at this idea of discipleship and how God calls every one of us to be people who are making disciples intentionally. We're called to invest in others' lives. And, and so that is, if it's the first step to come to know Jesus as Savior or if it's to help someone grow in maturity, we're called to invest in others. And then last week, we looked at this idea of going, that the church is gathered and assembled here now. Riverview Baptist Church is present. And when we are not present here Monday through Saturday, we are present out there. And we are called to go with the mission. We're called to go with the gospel and to carry it to those that we interact with. Uh, there's two parts to go, though. Last week, we talked about going to our communities. This week, we're going to talk about going to our homes. We're going to talk about going to our homes with the gospel, something that God calls each and every believer to do. And so read with me in Colossians chapter 3. We'll be reading verses 17 through 21 together today. If you would, please go ahead and stand in honor of the reading of God's word. Colossians chapter 3, verses 17 through 21. This is what the word of the Lord says. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity to gather together and to hear your word preached. And so, Lord, as we have come to that portion of the service, God, we pray that you would speak. God, we pray that our hearts would be stilled and that we would hear what you would have to say to us today. We thank you that your word is living and active. God, that you use it to shape us and mold us more and more into the image of your Son. We pray that would happen now in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to go ahead and preface uh, our time together by saying this. You're going to have an opportunity at the end of the service to respond. There should be some prayer cards in your seats, in the seat back pockets right in front of you. And uh, 
I would encourage you to be thinking about what is it that the Lord would ask me to lay at his feet as we move towards the end of the service together. Because we're going to be talking about this, going to our families, be talking about, here's the main idea, I'll go ahead and share it with you, that to make disciples in the next generation, we must create Christ-reflecting relationships in our homes. And that's true of every home, of every situation, that we are called to create Christ-reflecting relationships in our families. And so husbands, your job, if you know Jesus Christ, is to reflect Him to your wives. Mothers, your job, if you know Jesus Christ, is to show your children by the way that you live, day in and day out, who Jesus is. Grandparents, if you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, your job is to help the little ones in your family see Him and know how to walk with Him. This is what all of us are called to do, regardless of age, regardless of where we find ourselves in our families. And so, to help us focus on this idea, we're going to watch a really brief video this morning because I think it's so easy for us to hear, okay, yeah, I understand this is going to be another family sermon, but I want us to see something. I think we we need to be woken up sometimes that this applies to all of us. So if we could, let's go ahead and cue that video. I want to be a disciple of Jesus. I want to be a disciple of Jesus. I want I want to be I want to be a faithful disciple a generational disciple disciple of Jesus I want to be a disciple of Jesus I want to lead my family God's way I want to love my wife to respect my husband I want to love my grandchildren to love my children to love my little nugget I want to obey my parents to honor my parents I want to do what's right to walk the way the Bible has taught me to walk. To study the scriptures. To read my Bible every day. To know God's word. I want to cover my family with prayer. To consistently pray for my family. I want to share Jesus with my friends. With my friends. With my co-workers. To share the good news with the whole world. To lead my grandchildren to Christ. To share Jesus with everyone. I want to personify Christ's love. Except. 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 I have so many questions. I have so many questions. Questions. So many questions. Questions. How do I start showing spiritual leadership at home? Do my grandkids know about Christ? What if I don't know enough? Is God real? Why doesn't mom ever talk about being Christian? Do I really believe my church? Is the Bible really true? How can I know God's will? Is God the Father like my dad? Like my dad? How can I champion family ministry when my family is in shambles? Would it be easier to give up? Just to give up my marriage. Would he be better off without me? Why did daddy leave? Are my parents getting divorced because of me? How am I supposed to fill the role of both parents? Are you proud of me? Do you love me? Am I alone? Are you listening? I need you. I need you. I need you. I need you to intentionally disciple me. Disciple me. Disciple me. 
I need you to disciple me. Disciple me. Disciple me. Disciple me. Disciple me. And so the reason that we need to talk about generational discipleship this morning, I think is very clear. What is happening in the lives of our families, what is happening in the lives of our spouses and our homes, in the lives of our children and grandchildren, is absolutely urgent. Hear me, friends. We live in a society that tells us each and every day, your family needs to wait. Your family can wait, and they must wait. And what you need to accomplish is this to-do list. You need to produce. You need to be a, a successful employee. You need to be able to accomplish your goals, your dreams, your stuff. But the reality is, each and every day, each and every moment, our families are changing. Spouses are either growing together or they're growing apart. Children are being raised. They're growing up in our homes. Grandchildren are moving step by step, day by day, towards their launch. And we must understand God has a plan for our families. God has called us to something. And so we need to be ready as God's people to live that out in our homes. But all too often, this is not the case. You see, I believe very simply this. Becoming a Christian and following Jesus is absolutely the best thing that will ever happen to you. Following Jesus Christ as your Savior is an incredible journey, and it's good. But listen to me. Following Jesus is hard. It's not easy. And I believe God has given us the family unit. One of the very most basic reasons is this. Our families are meant to walk around and be constant reminders to us in our homes that we belong to God. And in the ideal situation... Christians would walk around inside of their homes and they would reflect Jesus towards their families. They would help them understand who Jesus is. They would model Christ-like love to one another. They would model patience to one another. They would model forgiveness to each other. And they would look like Him and help one another know Him more clearly. But all too often, this is not where we are. Our families are often hurting. Our families are often broken. Sin does creep in. But here's the good news, friend. God restores. God is a God of redemption, a God of hope, a God of peace, a God of healing. And so I want us to stop wherever we may find our family situations this morning and ask ourselves this, how can I partner with Jesus for the sake of my own family? If I know Jesus Christ, what do I need to do to partner with him? I believe Colossians chapter 3 verses 17 through 21 has the answer for us this morning. Look at verse 17 with me again. It says, And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. You see, verse 17, I believe, is a really important verse in this passage, okay? Because before this, in verses 12 through 16, Paul is talking about relationships inside of the church. He's talking about how church members should relate to one another and live in relationship to one another. And then in verse 17, he begins to shift and he says, whatever you do, whatever you do. And then he goes right into the home. And here's what's happening. Here's what Paul is doing for you and for me in that moment. What he is saying is this, whatever you're doing at church, it should automatically be transferred to the home. Wherever we live, however we relate, however we love, however, however we're called to forgive, all those things apply to the family as well. And then there's more. 
There's extra that's applied to the family because the family is a special relationship. And so in many ways, what verse 17 is, it is, is it's kind of the connective tissue that take the bones of the church and how we're to relate to each other and the bones of the family and how that's supposed to look and relate to one another and ties those two things together so that there's consistency. And so we see whatever we do, we must do it in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And here's the idea. Here's what I'm getting at. We must absolutely reject the notion or the idea of a secular and sacred divide. We have to reject the secular-sacred divide. What does that mean? It means this. We are so quick to compartmentalize our lives. We're so quick to go through life and say, I have a role at church. I have a role in my family. I have a role at my work. I have a role on the golf course with my peers. I have these different roles and I have these different spheres of influence. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to live out my faith when I believe it's appropriate and when it feels right and when it's comfortable for me. And then what I will do is I will be silent or I will not live it out very clearly over here in these compartments because these belong to me. These are the practical things of life and these are the spiritual things of life. And what verse 17 says to you and to me is whatever you do, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, there's a question that I think we just need to ask ourselves that helps us understand this principle. And the question is, is very short, it's very simple. It just is this, will this honor God? Four words, will this honor God? End sentence, end question. And the way that applies to our lives is as I'm going through my life, as I'm frustrated with my spouse and I'm about to say some words to them, the question is, will this honor God? As I'm trying to tuck my little ones into bed and it's been a long day and they aren't listening very well and I'm about to speak, will this honor God? As I'm about to sit down and watch a TV show after everyone's gone to bed and be entertained, will this honor God? As I'm sitting at my dinner table and I've already had three plates of food and I'm about to eat some more dessert, will this honor God in all things, in everything that we do? And you may be sitting there and you may be thinking, well, Michael, you know, come on, lighten up. Life is meant to be enjoyed. Life is meant to be lived. Life is meant to be fun. And I would say, you're right. Life is meant to be enjoyed and God has told us the best way to enjoy it. And it's doing all things to honor him. And so, what we need to understand is this. If God is the God who spoke the world into existence, if God really is the God who made Moses' face shine for days, then He's worthy of everything that I do. He's worthy. It should honor Him. It's right and it's good. But all too often, this isn't the way that it lives out. I grew up in South Mississippi, as I've mentioned, and as I was growing up in the 90s, there was this big fad that happened in Christian circles all over I think the country, and I think was probably true of of Missouri as well. And uh, what it was, was there were these bracelets that people wore, and it had four letters on them. W-W-J-D. You guys had them too, yeah. And at first, I thought they were really cool, and I really liked them. But as time wore on, I actually began to hate those bracelets, and here's why. Because my friends would put those bracelets on, and they would go, and we would march into class together at school, in, in middle school and in high school, and... On their arm, what would Jesus do? They would curse friends who were made in their image. They would disrespect teachers. They would talk about obscene things. 
friends who wore WWJD, but it seemed to have no bearing on their lives. And, and, and so I began to be frustrated, and I began to hate those bracelets. And I think, friends, if we're not careful, what can happen in our homes is we can come to church to a place like this, and we can say to our families, WWJD. And then we go to our homes, and how do they see us live? What do they see us do? You see, we're called, especially inside of the family relationship, to make sure that we kill this sacred-secular divide. A little over 500 years ago, there was a man named Martin Luther. And in 1517, Martin Luther posted 95 theses on a door of one of the Catholic churches in Germany. And as he did so, he started a revolution called the Protestant Reformation. And one of the things that Martin Luther criticized, one of the things that he was, was saying inside of those 95 theses, those 95 critiques, 95 problems that he saw with the Catholic Church, was a sacred-secular divide. It was this idea, and it would almost be hard for us to imagine at this point because society and culture has changed so much, but in medieval times, there was an incredible distinction, there was an incredible clarity that the church was holy, and anything outside of that really was not. The way that came out, the way that it worked itself out in everyday life was that the cathedral was sacred, but the common house was not. The Bible was sacred, but there was no other sacred text. There was no other sacred place. The priest was sacred. The blacksmith was not. And so there were monks who lived in monasteries to separate themselves out from the world because they didn't want anything to do with it. They wanted to be unstained. They wanted to be clean. They wanted to be set apart. You see, the Catholic Church was literally seen as the storehouse of grace, the storehouse of faith, and that's where we had to go to receive it. It was the storehouse of relationship to God. And so to be excommunicated from the church, to be removed from that, was a dreadful thing. Why? Because it was to be removed from the sacred. It was to be removed from God himself. But what Luther said and what Luther understood... That's not true. See, what Luther understood was when he read, it is Christ in me that is the hope of glory. It's not Christ in the cathedral that's the hope of glory. It's Jesus Christ. And so it's not sacraments. It's not any of these things. What I need is not religion. I need a relationship with God Almighty. And that should color absolutely every area of my life, everything that I do. And so Luther was right to criticize this. Luther was right to point this out. And here's the point. Here's why I I belabor this idea. We need to do all things as unto the Lord, and we need to do all things as unto the Lord, especially in our homes, because each and every one of us is making disciples. See, discipleship is really just following. And what you follow, you will reflect. You see, there were men who walked around in Jesus' day, and they had disciples too. Jesus wasn't the very first disciple-maker. There were other men who were making disciples, but they weren't making disciples who followed Jesus. There were other teachers, other things that were out there. And what we need to understand, friends, is is just ask ourselves this question. What kind of a disciple am I making in my home? Am I making disciples who follow football? Or maybe I'm making disciples who follow the American dream. Or maybe it's academia. Or maybe I make disciples who follow comfort because that's what I'm living for. I live for the weekends and the vacations and the breaks. What is it that captivates my heart? What is it that captivates my home? Very simple way that we can see 
this, especially for those of us that have little ones as grandchildren or those of us that have little ones as parents. There's a very easy question that we can go and ask them, and they oftentimes will unabashedly answer. So we need to be careful and ready if we're going to ask this question. But it's a great question to ask, and the question is this. Go to a, a little one and just ask them, what does mommy or daddy love most? Who does mommy or daddy love most? And see what kind of answer you get. What does grandpa or grandma love best? Who does grandpa or grandma love best? See, the answer should be, we all know it, right? It's the Sunday school answer. Jesus, right? It should be Jesus, but be careful. We may be making disciples of something else, of someone else. And so we need to make sure that in our lives we are killing this sacred and secular divide. As it says in verse 17, whatever you do in word or deed, do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. Otherwise, we will not make generational disciples. We will not help our wives, our husbands. We will not help our children or grandchildren know how to follow Jesus well. And they have so many questions. So we must kill this idea of a sacred-secular divide. That's the first thing we need to do. We need to put that down and walk away from it. But God also calls us to embrace something else. He calls us to pick up something else. So if we're leaving this behind, what is it that I'm moving toward? The answer is found in verses 18 through 21. And that is God's design for the family. We need to embrace God's design that is given to us in His Word for our families. Verses 18 to 21, I want to read them in just a moment because I think there are some, some key words, some key things that I want to focus on. We don't have time to parse out every single relationship that's found there, but I do think there are some big themes that we need to recognize and embrace if we're going to make generational disciples. Let's look at verse 18. We need to, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. And fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. And so the first thing that we need to do is understand this. We need to treasure our families. As broken as they may be, as imperfect as they are, God has given people in our homes that are made in His image. And so whether I feel like I get along with them or not, God has called me to love them and to cherish them. And so the relationships that I have inside of my family should have certain privileges that other relationships don't. There should be certain things that happen in my home that are special and unique and a gift to my family because those people are a gift from God to me. And in my family, it worked out this way. There were many instances, but one of the ways that, that it worked out was something like this. I had a grandfather. My grandfather was, was from the old school. He grew up in the Great Depression, and he had nothing. And he was a man who was in service in World War II. He was a man who worked his entire life very, very hard. And he made a great living and a great family. And he was a man of great discipline. He was a man of great dignity. And I used to call him Pop. That's, that was his name. And so when we would go to Pop's house, I knew, as I'm going to Pop's house, there's some rules. Pop's going to do things a certain way. So you're going to dress a certain way. You're going to talk a certain way. We're going to all sit at the family table together, and when we sit down, we're going to sit there until he says it's time to get up, 
He's going to sit at the head of the table. It's going to be a certain way. He's a great man of discipline, a great man of dignity, a man that I respected and admired in many ways. And as a part of that, Pop wasn't afraid of anybody. He would stand up for his family. He would stand up to anybody for his business. He was a man of great courage. But one thing that I knew, one way that I knew my relationship with Pop was special was this. As I said, Pop didn't back down. And he would certainly never get on his knees for any other person on the planet, except there was one group of people that he would do that for. His grandchildren. Pop would get down on his knees, he'd roll around on the floor with us, he'd laugh with us, and he'd be undignified for us. Why? Because we're special. Because we were his grandchildren. And being a part of his family came with a privilege. You see, this is what God calls us to, friends. There should be privilege inside of our families. There should be a closeness. There should be an intimacy that is special and unique inside of those relationships. It doesn't always work out that way, but this is God's plan. This is God's design. And so instead of pointing the finger and asking and saying, well, this person is not doing their part, why don't we just do ours today? Why don't we show our family members the love that God calls us to? We must remember this, friends. You are irreplaceable in your homes. Dads, moms, listen to me. As you chase your careers, work hard, go hard, do things. But remember, you're irreplaceable in your home. You'll be replaced in every other situation on the planet. You'll be replaced at work. You'll be replaced at sports and in your hobbies. You'll often be replaced in your peer circles. If you move away, your friends will find new friends. Listen, to some degree, you can even be replaced in your local church. If I die tomorrow, guess what? Somebody's going to be standing in this pulpit next Sunday. Why? Because God has designed it that way. This is bigger than me. But our families, friends, we cannot be replaced inside of our families without a great sense of pain, a great sense of loss, a great sense of sorrow. Why? Because God has designed it that way. You're irreplaceable in your family. And so we need to love and cherish the people that God has given us in our homes. We need to understand that they are gifts to us, and we are gifts to them. And if I'm not giving myself fully to that, then I'm withholding some of God's goodness and grace that they're meant to have. We must be willing to treasure them. The other way that we embrace God's design for our family is this. We have to trust God's design. We actually have to trust what is written here in the Bible. See, either what is written here is absolutely infallible and true and without error, or it's not. There's no middle ground. Either it is God's holy word to us, or it's not. And so if God has given us a plan for the family, then we need to trust that plan, even if it doesn't always make sense to us. And so we need to trust God's design, and we need to notice the order in which these relationships come. I want us to look at verses 18 through 21. How, what relationship does this passage begin with? It begins with husbands and wives. It begins with the marriage relationship. And that is not with just happenstance. That is not by mistake. That is not in some just kind of coincidental way that it ended up like this. No, God is saying to families, this relationship starts first. This is the foundation of every other relationship in the family. You see, husbands are not to love partners. 
Wives are not to submit to significant others. The marriage relationship is a unique design and gift from God that will not change no matter how culture tries to redefine it. Why? Because marriage doesn't just have a political function. Marriage is not just some physical thing. Marriage is also a spiritual thing. God has designed marriage to do something that no other relationship on the planet can do to the same level, to the same degree, and that is this. God has designed marriage to be a picture, a living metaphor, Christian marriage, I should say, a living metaphor of the gospel to a watching world. God always, always, always keeps his covenants to his people. He doesn't give up. He doesn't walk away. He doesn't surrender. God pursues. God loves. God endures. And so God has given us something. And when he says in Ephesians 5, he gives these roles again in Ephesians chapter 5. And as he gets towards the end of that section, what he says, Paul says is, I'm not talking about just families. I'm not talking about just the physical. This mystery is true of Christ and the church. He's saying the way that spouses love one another should show to a watching world, to children, to grandparents, and to everyone in between the love that God has for his children. This is true of the New Testament. It's not something Paul just made up. Where did Paul get this? If you look in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, there's a book that's often neglected called the book of Hosea. Hosea was a prophet of God. Hosea lived in a dark time in Israel's history. When Israel was running from the Lord. And God came to Hosea and he asked him to do something that I think many of us would consider unthinkable. He asked Hosea to marry a promiscuous woman. Go and find this promiscuous woman and marry her. Her name was Gomer. And so Hosea goes and marries Gomer. And he does so in obedience to the Lord. And just as might be predicted, Gomer is unfaithful. Gomer pursues other lovers. Gomer hurts Hosea time and time and time again. She proves she's untrustworthy time and time and time again. And in chapter 3, verse 1, we don't have time to turn there, but if you're taking notes, I just encourage you to scribble that down. Chapter 3, verse 1, the Lord appears to Hosea and he says, Go again and buy your wife back. That's an incredible thing that the Lord is saying here. What he says in that verse, Hosea goes on to kind of mark out, he says, I, I set aside this many shekels of silver, and I had to set aside some barley, and I had to set aside some other things. Why? The reason that's there is because what Hosea is saying is, I didn't really have the money to buy her back. I also had to barter, I had to use food, I had to use things. It was incredibly costly for me to buy my wife a promiscuity back. And the Bible doesn't just say, go and get her and live with her. Actually, it says in Hosea 3, verse 1, go and love again your wife. Don't just live with her, love her. Show her who I am. Redeem her, buy her back, bring her to yourself, and love her with an unending love. This is what marriage is meant to do. This is what marriage is meant to picture. And even in those verses, in in Hosea chapter 3, God says, and this is going to be a picture of my relationship with Israel. He says, they have loved other gods 
They have chased other gods. They have prostituted themselves out towards other gods and other things. But here's the deal. I'm not going to give up. I'm a God who's going to endure. I'm a God who's going to chase after Israel. And I'm going to redeem them and bring them back to myself and love them with an everlasting love. And so God's picture for marriage is something that is spiritual. It's something that's bigger than just us and our little relationships. It is meant to picture a love for God. And so I just want to say this to you. Married spouses, wherever you are in your marriage, whether you're a grandparent, whether you're a parent, wherever you may find yourself, you have an opportunity to pass on a picture of God's love to those that you live with, to those that you walk with, to those that enter into your homes each and every moment of each and every day. You have a chance to pass on this picture. I want us to look at Colossians 3.13. This is really important. So Colossians chapter 3, just a few verses up, he's talking about relationships in the church. But remember, because of 17, whatever happens in the church should also happen in the home. This is what he says. Bear with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. You see, one of the things that's really important that we have to understand inside of the marriage relationship is that there are two sinful people coming together. And whenever two sinful people live in the same house for very long, there's going to be friction. There's going to be issues because my sin's going to come out. And so is the sin of the other person. And so we need to be prepared. And this is what it says. It says, how then am I supposed to forgive? What does it look like to bear with someone? How do I forgive someone? As Jesus Christ has forgiven us, as the Lord has forgiven us in Jesus Christ. Well, how did he forgive us? What did he do? He died. You see, Jesus Christ loves us with an unending, everlasting, never giving up kind of love. Thank God, right? I need that kind of love. Because I'm going to blow it today, and I'm going to blow it tomorrow, and I'm going to blow it the next day. But thank God His mercies are new every morning. And so I am called to love my spouse. I'm called to bear with my spouse in this way. Even as I say that, I don't want us to... To overhear, I understand that, that there are times when sin is incredibly ugly and incredibly painful. And I do believe that there are times when separation may be necessary for a season. But we are called to love and forgive even the ugliest of sins. We're called to forgive our spouses. And so we need to understand that this relationship is the foundation for every other relationship. So how is your marriage today? How are you reflecting Jesus to your spouse? You see, you cannot be the parent that God is calling you to be without first being the spouse, the husband, the wife that God is calling you to be. Your children are watching. They see and they know. You cannot be the grandparent that you are called to be without first being the spouse, the husband or wife that you're called to be. Why? Because your relationship is reflecting something constantly to every person that's coming in your home. Is it reflecting the love and long-suffering and never-giving-up kind of hope that Jesus has for us? This is what we are called to do. And so we need to embrace this. We need to accept this and not hold it at arm's length. So the husband and wife relationship. Next, I want us to see the children and parent relationship. And, and children, if you're here today and you're in the room, 
you're kind of off the hook because I just don't have enough time to talk about all of your responsibilities to your parents today. But know this, God calls you children to honor your father and your mother. And that's a lifelong command. I have a father and a mother, and guess what I'm supposed to do? I'm supposed to honor them. And so children, honor your parents. Now the rest of the time you're off the hook. Parents, I want to talk with you for just a little bit. Here's the deal. We are called and we are given these gifts. We're given these incredible miracles of God that run through our homes every day. And I just want to ask you a question that I think gets to the heart of the matter. And the question is this. What can be more important than being used by God in the formation of an everlasting human soul? What's more important? Is it goals at work? Is it some hobby? Is it something that, that I need to go and achieve out there? The answer is there's nothing. There is nothing more important than being used by God to mold and shape a human soul, hopefully to walk with Him for the rest of their lives. This is your privilege. This is your joy. This is what you get to do. And it must be in both word and deed. That's really important. Look at verse 17 again. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. And so in our homes, there needs to be teaching. Did you notice the the child who asked, how come mom never talks about being a Christian? There needs to be verbal teaching about who Jesus is. But there also needs to be action. It needs to be lived out in the deeds that we display, in the way that we love our families, in the way that we discipline, in the way that we run our households, in both word and deed. It is important. It is necessary. Why? There's a quote by St. Francis of Assisi that that I actually hate. Um, It's a famous quote, and it says something like this. It says, speak the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. I just want to say, "Eh, wrong. Speak the gospel at all times in the way that you live and also use words. It is a both and kind of a deal. It is necessary. If we don't have the boldness to speak up and speak out, then the message is unclear. The message must be crystal clear. God has given us a mouth for a reason. It's to speak of Jesus. But if all we do is speak, if all we do is WWJD, and then we don't actually live it, we're hypocrites. And so God calls us to word and deed. He calls us to both inside of our homes. And so parents, grandparents, teach your children. Verbally tell them of who Jesus is and what he's done for you. And then we also need to have the guts to just live it out. To live by faith. And to show children God's love with our actions. I want to help us think through this for just a moment. You see, we will not have redemptive, Christ-reflecting, God-honoring relationships in our homes if we're not crystal clear about three things. So I want to very quickly run through three big ideas that are absolutely necessary if we're going to be the people that God calls us to be in our homes. Number one, we need to know grace is necessary. Grace is a must inside of the home. Grace is an absolute. Verse 17, where is that coming from? Again, verse 17 is so important. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. You see, it's very hard to be gracious if I'm not first grateful. I need to be grateful 
Wherever I find myself in the world, whatever I find myself facing, as broken as my home life may be, as messed up as it all, it all is, I can still be grateful. You know why? Because the biggest problem that I'm ever going to face, if I know Jesus Christ, is dealt with. God has forgiven my sin. And so I can be thankful for Jesus Christ. I can be thankful that this life is not all there is. And I can live with grace inside of the relationships that he's given me. And I'm sure we could all count many other things that we can be thankful for. And so if we're going to be graceful people, if we're going to be gracious people, we must be grateful people. But another way that we can live with grace inside of our homes is pray. We need to pray for each other. And listen to me, we need to pray with each other. We need to pray with each other. We need to pray with our spouses. We need to pray with our children. Why is it sometimes awkward to do that? Why is it so hard to do that? I'll tell you why. Because prayer, if we're doing it right and we're being genuine, we're being authentic in our prayer life, we expose our hearts. We expose who we really are. And so here's why it is so crucial that we pray with our families and we allow them to see that. Number one, it's demonstrating faith that I don't have everything put together and I don't have all that it takes and I need God. I'm going to invite him into this home. I'm going to invite him into this relationship. But secondly, it gives you the privilege and opportunity to hear the true hearts of your children. It gives you the privilege and joy of hearing the heart of your spouse and what it is that they're wrestling with, to hear their hopes, to hear their dreams, to hear their concerns. And so you pray with one another. And it may be awkward at first, but over time, it is a source of such unity because I know the heart of my spouse. I know the heart of my loved ones. And I can pray with them and I can join them in praying for the things that that God has placed on their hearts. We need to pray Second thing we need to remember is, is grace is necessary. Excuse me. The second thing we need to remember is time is limited. Time is limited. You have a few short years. And that's it. How long is 40 years? How long is 50 years? How long is, is even 60 years if we're lucky in light of eternity? It's that long. You see, we have a limited short time. On this earth. And so, what we need to do is we need to allow our families to see us seeking God with the time that we have. We need to let them see us reading our Bibles in the mornings. We need to let them see that we've been spending time with the Creator of the universe. We need to share with them around the dinner table perhaps things that maybe we're struggling with a little bit at work. This situation's hard on me right now, but I trust God with it. I'm going to give it to God. I'm going to surrender it to God. We take time to show our faith to those that we live with. We also need to understand time is short. We need to enjoy our families. Listen to me. God delights in His children. Do you delight in your family? Are there times where you find time to love each other and to laugh and to spend time together? This is what he has called us to. This is what we are supposed to do. Eighteen years in the light of eternity is this. It is not long. It is all that we have. And if we are not careful, we will find ourselves asleep at the wheel. So youth pastor in Mississippi, and my college town was over two hours away from the church that I would minister at. So I have to drive two hours one way, do ministry and drive two hours back. And oftentimes that resulted in me arriving back at my dorm room very, very late at night. 
And I remember one night in particular, it was incredibly late. It was 2 or 3 in the morning, and I'm driving back. And something happened as I was driving. I magically, it seemed like to me, pulled into a parking spot in front of my dorm. I thought, how in the world did I end up here? I left Liberty, Mississippi, and suddenly here I am. I'd been on autopilot for two hours. Couldn't remember a thing. But I got myself there. You know how I got myself there? The grace of God. Okay? Here's what we need to remember. We need the grace of God, but God calls us not to be on autopilot. God calls us to be aware and invested and intentional with the people that he's given us. Time is short. What are you doing with the time that you have? Lastly, Jesus gets the last word on your life and on your family. That's an important thing. There's a word of encouragement there and there's a word of warning there. Okay? The encouragement is this. Jesus gets the last word on your family. And so in some ways, it doesn't matter what you think. In some ways, it doesn't matter what the people out there think about you and your family and your family relationship. What matters is what Jesus thinks. And here's the wonderful good news for those of us that are in broken home situations. God is a God of unending, extravagant grace and mercy. And He is in the business of taking ugly, ugly things and making them beautiful. It's who he is. It's what he does. He takes ugly sinners and he makes them saints. He takes fallen relationships, broken relationships, and he finds ways to mend for our good and for his glory. And he can do it in your life. So wherever you are, wherever you find yourself, no, it's not too late. It is not too late for the God of redemption and grace to restore your situation. But I also want to give us a word of warning. And the word of warning is this. Remember that your family is not the exception to God's plan. This is the only way. God has given us His way. God has given us. He has told us how to do it in His word. And we either will or we won't. Your family is not the exception. Your family needs you. Your family needs you to demonstrate Christ's love to them. Are you doing it? Are you doing it? You see, we can attack the doctrine of complementarity. We can attack the idea of grace-based marriages that don't give up. We can say that these things are outmoded and outdated and they no longer matter. But what you cannot do is deny their glory when they're lived out in front of you. You cannot deny the goodness of these things. You cannot deny the truth and power of a family that has walked with one another and has, has embraced God's design. You see, we buried a man at Riverview this past Tuesday. And many of you were there. This man who had lived a full life, 87 years old. And he wasn't perfect. He made many mistakes, as we all do. But he knew God he knew Jesus Christ as his personal Lord and Savior, and he's forgiven. He's with Jesus now in glory. He's doing better than any of us are. And as I was at that funeral, and I was looking around, I was sitting on this pew right here, and I looked to my left, and I was struck. And this may sound like a strange thing to say, but I was struck by the beauty of it all. And here's why. Here's what I mean. I was struck by a son who had loved his father faithfully, 
as he prepared to leave this earth. I was struck as I watched this son who had married a wife of his own and loved her faithfully for over 40 years and how they had raised three daughters of their own to live and, and love Jesus, to live for Jesus. I was struck as I reflected on how those daughters had turned and in their own lives married godly men who now had children of their own. And I was struck as I watched three generations stand and sing and praise God in the face of death. Generation after generation after generation saying, this isn't the end for us. My God's defeated the grave. And so this family can stand and sing with hope. And what they are declaring to a watching world, day in and day out, is yes, you can deny a lot of things, but you can't deny love that overcomes the grave. You cannot deny God's goodness and grace and mercy to us in Jesus Christ. And when we see that lived out, it speaks a testimony so much louder than words. You see, you can't deny the glory of God's good design. You can't deny the beauty of a mother's unfailing love for her children. You can't deny the power of a marriage that withstands the ugliest and strongest of storms. You cannot deny the goodness of, ch- of children knowing the safety and comfort and security of a loving father. These things are good. These things are right. And so as I watched that family, it just hit me. This is good. Until Jesus comes back, this is the way it ought to be. And so, friends, this is what God has given us to do. This is what God has called us to be in our homes. This is how he's called us to live. And so the question that I want to ask you today is, are you doing this? Are you doing this? In just a moment, you're going to have an opportunity to bring prayer cards forward at the end of this service. And I just want to ask you, in this moment, to just be still, to think of your own family situation, to think of those that God has placed in your life, and to just consider, what do I need to lay at the feet of Jesus today? I just want to promise you, whatever you lay in these cards will be confidential and personal, and I would love to have the privilege to pray with you as you seek restoration, as you seek ways to reflect Christ to your family. Not only that, I just want to say this, that we live lives of faith through grace by what you've done for us, Father. Thank you for all that you've done in your name. Amen. Thank you. You're dismissed.